Welcome to Doc Student 101, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Linnea Rademacher, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. Hi, Linnea. Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm good. We are bereft of Dr. Williams, but we're actually joined by another Dr. Williams. Uh, So Dr. Jennifer Williams has joined us today, and Dr. K.K. O'Brien has joined us today. These are colleagues of ours who um, uh, have a lot of expertise in the content that we wanted to talk about today. And so um, K.K. and Jennifer, we're so glad you guys joined us. Good morning. Thanks for having us. So glad to be here. Thank you. It's a very important topic. I, yeah. I think talking about uh, grief, stress, trauma in this pandemic is relevant to uh, many people, not just doc students. And so we hope that you find this helpful. That's right. I mean, uh, so we're going to talk. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about the stress and the anxiety and some of even the trauma that goes on with, um, you know, the the COVID situation, but particularly for doc students. But yeah, Linnea, this is not, um, we're not just doc students. We're not just um, professionals. We're not just parents. We're all those things at once. And so it might be that um, this is less about your schoolwork and more about other aspects of of our, I mean, of our lives, because they are all kind of bleeding into one another, literally bleeding into one another at this point, because, you know, so many people are working from home and uh, taking care of kids and trying to do schoolwork yes. and, and, and all at the same time. Yes, very much. So KK and Jennifer, welcome. Uh, and the viewer, the, the listener can't see this, but KK's cat is joining us, uh, it appears. So that's, in, that's <laughs> yeah. a whole other stress relief strategy, I guess. Oh, definitely. Luna has a lot to say about, about managing stress. <laughs> hey, so let's talk a little bit about um, what we've observed with our students so far. I mean, um, you know, whether we're talking about students taking courses or students in dissertation or students making, trying to make decisions about whether to stay or take terms off, what are some of the things you're seeing happening right now for uh, for students in, in, in our doc program? I have several students who are struggling to get things in on time and for good reason, because they have so many added responsibilities. In some cases, it's having children at home. And in some cases, it's that their primary jobs are on the front line. So they are not able to be at, safely at home like I am and, and have to go out into the world more than before. Um, whether that's with medical care or serving food, there, there are a number of frontline students too. So yes, the stressors um, in many cases have multiplied the tasks. And I would add to that, another thing that I've seen in our students is something that I think people in general are experiencing where they are now adjusting to working at home. Like Jennifer mentioned that, hey, some of them have young kids and families at home, but but also just the modality of working online and working remotely is um, can be challenging for, for different people and, you know, especially depending on their, their position. And I've had students who are, who are educators who are now switching to um, teaching online and some who are leaders in education who are trying to develop a, a plan um, with basically no warning of, okay, here's what we're going to do. Life is 
and work as we as we knew it today is different tomorrow we have to figure out how to lead people and educate others distantly and so i think that's been another challenge it's just that um total you know topsy-turvy everything being turned upside down with with their their work and their their role there yeah i mean um you know this is true for just about anyone who's in a doc program we're in we teach in a leadership program, but this is probably true for almost every field that um, students who are in doc programs tend to be um, folks who are doing some form of leadership elsewhere, whether it's in education, whether it's in psychology, whether it's in um, organizations and in, um, in business, in the corporate setting. One of the students in, in my class is uh, a leader in uh, health and human services. And so obviously she's a little busy right now. And I think that's probably the case for many of our students, just because for many doc students, just because these are people who are earning uh, the final credential of expertise. And so they're, they tend to be people who are also uh, sought after in the workplace and they're sought after within their communities. And so um, I think acknowledging a little bit that this is not un- the, the challenges that doc students are facing are not unique because everybody's dealing with a bunch of junk trying to trying to juggle all of this stuff but because you're in a doc program you're probably encountering a lot more um responsibility outside of the doc program yeah and i and i think so many of of the students that i encounter are used to doing uh, their job as separate from their family after work life and they're used to going to work they get that done they have that focus they interact with their colleagues and then they come home and they interact with their family and their children and they take care of now it's all intertwined and it's very difficult for people who are not used to this to uh, navigate that interaction and intersection that's true. But Linnea, I would I would like to point out that being intertwined, I think there's a really healthy element to that because now in our leadership roles, we have to be our whole selves and we cannot create this compartment. Uh, like right now, KK is struggling with her cat and that is normal. That is part of what it means to be a leader whose life at home is intertwined with what you're doing. And that will become more normalized for us as we experience this more fully. And I I think that may be especially important for women because we've often had this, there's a dynamic in with which we have to pretend that we don't really care about our home life while we're at work, which is not true. That's such a great point. That's such a great point. Yeah, maybe this will be an opportunity for that piece of being human to become more normalized everything's everything's on display i mean so many times when you're meeting with people you're meeting with people in their bedrooms or in their living rooms or in their garages or there's dirty clothes on the floor and um we're getting to kind of interact with one another in very real ways so um so late work is an, an example of how that's happening what else um are you seeing in terms of some of the challenges that doc students are 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 facing I, I mean i'll give you an example from from my own family my son-in-law is a doctoral student and um, they are in peru right now and so they're trying to figure out how to 
navigate some of the civil unrest that's happening in their own village, the extreme poverty and the extreme consequences of poverty in the, con in the context of quarantines, and whether or not they're going to be able to get home, and if they come home, what that's going to look like and how soon they need to uh, pack up. And meanwhile, he's trying to figure out how to do his homework. He's trying to figure out whether to take courses in summer one or summer two. And so the realities of kind of trying to figure out how to do a doc program while he's juggling uh, all of these other concerns, it seems like it might be extreme, but it's not. It's consistent. It's on a continuum, I think, for, for, for almost everyone trying to figure out where do my roles play out and how do I keep – how do I decide – when things are important and when they're not important. So, Linnea, you were talking a little bit before about uh, if if you'd have had to have done uh, uh, your doc program in this context, what what kind of challenges that would have been for oh, you? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I I really did try to compartmentalize my work in the doc program. When I was home, I was home. When I was on campus, I was on campus, uh, and work fast to get my work done so I could get home. And I, I think about. Uh, you know, if I had these four children at home and trying to work full time from home and everybody's in the house and everybody wants things. And not only that, I'm trying to find enough food to feed three, four teenagers. Uh, I think that's stressful. I had a student come to me the other day and was she was apologizing because she felt like she was home, even though she's a teacher and she's working and she has two children and she said i'm sorry i should have gotten more work done and i said don't apologize this is this is new this is trying to figure out how to do these things together and and you have to be gracious to yourself i am gracious to you and you have to be gracious to yourself linia i think that is such great advice that we have to be good to ourselves right now and i think that you know a lot of people when they're adjusting and things aren't going well, their tendency is to beat themselves up. Um, but right now, everything is different, and we've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to make sure we're getting um, enough nutrition, and we've got to make sure that we're getting some kind of, of exercise and that we're getting enough sleep and that we're connecting with others. Like, so those are some of the, those very basic things. And it's it, things, other things are not going to be perfect right now and they may be actually absolutely disastrous with school or work or whatever but it's like we're all adjusting and growing this is new for everybody there's not a script or a roadmap here and so we just have to be kind to ourselves and know that hey we're human we're all experiencing the same thing i think that many people feel like oh my prof professor's not going to understand and I've been very explicit, like you all have with students that, oh, anything you need, uh, don't worry about late assignments right now. Like mm -hmm. we're all managing this together and figuring it all out. So come to us, come and 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 let me know what you need. Um, and I'm teaching statistics right now, which is a very anxiety provoking class to, to begin with. And then, you know, the obviously all of the different changes right now, I think kind of amplify that. But I think it is, um, you know, we lead by example, we're giving our students grace and Hey, um, give yourself grace now too. You know, I saw that's, a, that's such an important reminder. I saw, um, a graphic that showed Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, which the basic need is physiological needs. And then the second is safety. 
and there was an arrow pointing to it and it said, you are here at the safety level, right? And okay. this is where we are right now. We're trying to figure out how to satisfy our, and, and, and make sure that we're meeting our physiological needs and our safety needs. And oftentimes that's where we have to stop for the day. Absolutely. <laughs> and that might mean I turn in my assignment a little bit late. Absolutely. Or that you have dinner that's soup from a can or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that's okay. And we all have to just give ourselves grace that we are doing the best that we can do. And, you know, I had a student reach out a couple of weeks ago and she's like, I'm sorry, my assignment is, is going to be late. And, and, um, I'm like, well, you know, that's okay. And she's like, I was up all night last night trying to figure this thing out for work. And, and then I started the assignment and I just couldn't do it. I'm like, well, I'm glad that you put the assignment down because first of all, um, doing an assignment on no sleep is not um, going to be your best work anyway. You're not going to learn or understand or retain anything, but sleep is more important than, than school right now. So if you're choosing between the two, choose sleep. That is so important. And we'll work out the school part later. I love that. Jennifer, I'm, I've confessed on this program that I am not very intelligent emotionally. And one of the ways that I've learned that I am not very intelligent emotionally is I have very few, I have a limited vocabulary for my feelings. Um, and your husband has uh, echoed his commiseration with my problem. <laughs> I mean, on I'm the podcast, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying anything he hasn't said. Um, but this is a, this is a place where I think vocabulary does become important. Is I, it's hard sometimes to put a name to some of the feelings that and some of the experiences we're having. Can you help us kind of think a little bit about some of the different? experiences from stress to grief to trauma to those other things? How are, how do we think about talking about these things, even in our own heads? That's an excellent question, Scott, because often what we do is we just say, oh, I'm so stressed. And that's a first clue that we need to explore further, but it's not enough information because stress can mean all sorts of different feelings. Um, so, let me start with trauma since that's kind of that's my um, practice focus area is um, I, I work with clients who have had traumatic experiences. But trauma means that either some physical harm has occurred or threat of physical harm has occurred or sexual violence. Those are the definitions of trauma. And it can be that it happened to me. It can be that it happened to someone I know and I heard about it later. Or it can be that I witnessed it happening to a stranger or to someone I know. Um, and while that's usually excluded, uh, if you only see it on television, still the repeated seeing it on television with people that you can easily identify with who seem a lot like you, that becomes a traumatic experience over time, um, as is reflected in now the definition extends to first responders who see the results of traumatic events over and over. Um, so by those definitions, really, we're, we're all there. We're all experiencing trauma. And there's some level in which that be becomes more like a, a community, a, um, a, a collective trauma uh, that you might see after a disaster event, except that it's global this time. One thing that's important to recognize with trauma is that there are some really normal ways that human beings respond to trauma, which I can talk about later because it goes down a different track. But 
um, there, it's really important when we're talking about grace to ourselves to know that those responses, those emotional responses we have are normal. And so digging into what they are, you probably know the words. It's just finding what that feeling is and putting the label on it as you explore it. So it could be disappointment um, and a, a deeper level of disappointment would be grief. Um, it could be overwhelm. It could be fear. It could be anger. And all of these are um, emotions that we, we know the labels to, but we don't always dig into what that feeling is for me. And Jennifer, I think that you summed that up so beautifully. And when we're talking about about labeling our our emotions and that danger of just putting things in a very broad category, um, labeling those specific emotions, as we all know, um, has benefits, even labeling negative emotions and labeling positive emotions. But especially when we're labeling negative emotions and we can get really specific like that, we know that it helps us recover more quickly from that experience. Um, We have less physiological arousal when we're labeling that specific emotion. And we recover more quickly um, from from that experience too. And oftentimes labeling it can help normalize that, oh yes, this is a thing that other people experience. We even have a name for it, right? It can um, connect us with, with others. Um, but then it can also give us some guidance in terms of how to cope with it. So, you know, if it's, if we're experiencing anger versus fear, for example, um, those labeling those specific emotions can help us guide ourselves to to overcoming that. That's a great point. And I, I think, too, um, labeling the emotion as something that I have, not something that I am. I notice that I'm feeling angry is a different statement from I am angry, because now it becomes something that I'm experiencing right now. It's not my full identity. That was something that has been very important to me in terms of learning that practice of, um, and this comes from uh, kind of a meditation approach, but this is me feeling anxious or this is me feeling stressed or this is me being angry as opposed to saying I am angry. It just kind of gives me a chance to observe the feeling rather than deciding that that feeling is somehow definitive of who I am. That's excellent. I mean, I can say as someone with a a chronic illness, I started this quarantine and I was saying, I am afraid. I am afraid all the time. And, and then as the month wore on, it's like, well, I'm not afraid at this moment. I'm not afraid right now. We went for a lovely walk in the park. I'm not afraid. I'm feeling afraid at certain times and less so as every day goes on. But that's a very important point. Thank you for that. I think the other thing, too, is um, being aware of these things can sometimes give us permission to go ahead and ask for help. The reason I'm bringing this up on a Doc 101 podcast is not to go down and give your business to your local therapist, although that's probably a good idea. But asking for help might be asking for a little help from your professor, uh, a little bit of understanding on the late assignment. I mean, I... I, I have noticed that th- there are students who are just so resistant 
to asking for any kind of assistance or any kind of leeway. I get the ones who ask for it all the time for any reason, but um, if you find that you are rarely asking for um, permission to turn something in late or a little bit extra time to work on a project or maybe even some feedback because your brain is full, you know, becoming aware of what you're going through sometimes gives you permission to go ahead and, and do that if you, if you feel like you might be reticent to do it. Can we switch to talking about ways that we can manage our stress and anxieties and fear and anger uh, during this time? Things like the positive um, psychology and leadership uh, ideas. Yeah, I guess we've kind of already started that path, haven't we, Linia? Maybe we should talk a little bit about. Yeah. Um, okay, so what can we do about it? Well, I would say um, also that our feelings have evolved as protective factors. So those negative emotions are life-saving. They, they are there to protect us. Our brain does its job when we are afraid. It's working hard. It's telling us to look out for danger. And that part of the brain that creates the startle response and signals fear is telling us that we need to turn around and see what's going on in our environment and make sure that we know how to be okay. So it's it's a serves a purpose and it's not something for us to fight and try to not have. It's something for us to notice and manage and grow and learn from. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, Jennifer's spot on with that. And it it is, there's this little tiny almond-shaped structure that's deeply embedded in, um, in one of the most primitive parts of the human brain. And not only has it remained over time, but it's become wired more strongly to the more highly evolved parts of the human brain, like the neocortex. Um, again, il- just illustrating what Jennifer said, how important it is that that we have negative emotions and that we never want to wish those away or, um, or you know, ignore them. Um, quite the contrary, we want to attend to those so that we can address what's going on in our environment that we can maybe do something about and what we can do um, ourselves to to manage the the situation and to to tamper down those those feelings and one of the um, you know they do have this survival benefit right negative emotions do and again that's critical but they also in a situation like this um, when we experience chronic stress. Um, that's where the the danger comes in. When we are in fight or flight mode um, consistently, we know that it has enormous um, wear and tear on our our mental health and our physical health. What are some of the warning signs that you've gone from being um, anxious or stressed to kind of the chronic? That's a good question. And sometimes we can have physical signs like headaches or muscle tension, um, stomach aches. Sometimes um, we can see changes in our um, behavior um, if we notice that we're really irritable or that we seem to kind of snap and we're yelling at at people that we normally wouldn't yell at or um, things like that. And, um, and sometimes it's, 
there are emotional responses. Like if we feel like we're, we're crying all the time or we are, are, are sad or not able to focus, um, things like that, those can be signs. And I think for many people, one of the biggest um, signs is lack of sleep, that they're not able to, to sleep. That not being able to focus, that's a really common one. And um, I hear it in the, I work often with um, highly traumatized communities of um, immigrant populations, asylum seekers and refugees. And I don't think I've ever talked with anyone who didn't say they had trouble concentrating. And if if any of our students have trouble concentrating, I, I would really hope they know that this is not only normal, it's probably universal. Because at that, as Kek so beautifully described with the, the two parts of the brain that are working together and sometimes against each other, there's that, that um, small almond-shaped part that she mentioned, the amygdala, that's sending out the, the danger signal. And then there are all the, the cognitive functions of the brain that's trying to rationalize and say, oh, you're being overcautious here. And so our brain is battling back and forth with, are we really in danger or, or am I really in danger or am I not? And it's pretty busy. And so the bandwidth that we used to have, we're just concentrating on schoolwork or anything else. The bandwidth is a lot smaller now. That's a good point. I I can see that as a professor. I can see that in my own work. As I'm grading student work, I get distracted very easily. I normally do, but more so. You know, I have to really parse out my work so that I'm not pushing myself to read 14 papers in one day. Uh, it, it's just not possible for me right now. And so I would say to uh, my students or anyone who is working, again, that grace, you know, we're, we're going to need to take more time. Well, Linnea, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I think that grace thing is, look, when we enter a doc program, it's usually the, not always, but usually the kind of student that has always been successful before. We pushed ourselves through any barriers that we might have experienced and we find our way through them. And um, we tend to do our best work even when it's really hard to do it. And so all of a sudden, you know, we're in a doc program where we're being tapped and the cognitive processes that we're asked to engage are, are you know, really pushing us to the limit. And meanwhile, uh, the kids might be screaming in the other room and uh, work seems to be uh, ever present instead of at the office. And, you know, giving ourselves permission to go ahead and turn in something to get a B and be okay with it. I mean, that's a hard thing for many, many, many doc students. It's very hard to say, you know what, this is going to have to be enough. Maybe I'll even get a C on this assignment, uh, just so I, and I might get a B in the class. But just be okay with that. But you, you, do you see my point? I, I think being okay with yes. doing good enough is a really important strategy right now. Yes, uh, you know, a B is not going to define you either in your this program or in your work. No, I don't want to say the grade grades don't matter and your work doesn't matter. Of course, it matters, but you have to be able to say. You know, as a professor said to me once when I was in my doc program, he said, all right, I'm not fighting on grades. You decide which grade you want. Here's what you have to do for an A. Here's what you have to do for an A minus. Here's what you have to do for a B. I don't give anything below B. You shouldn't be in the program if you're getting below B. So <laughs> he yeah. chose. And that was a that was so liberating for me because I was having a particularly tough semester 
going back and forth to school with four children, I said, okay, I'm taking the B. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a big conversation happening in higher ed writ large about whether this is a time to really be thinking about pass fail as a, as a model, just because for, for that very reason that we're really kind of, um, we're really testing the limits of these micro measurements between, you know, a plus a, a minus B plus we're, we're really up against those, uh, the kind of the absurdity of those micro micro measures. And changing that perception of pass fail as pass, you've got it. This will help you in your next step. That's fine. Fail. You might need to do some more before you get it instead of fail. That's a you're great. a failure. And that is the thing that students hear. When they get an F or a D or a C, they hear you're a failure. And that's not what we mean. And so that would re require changing that entire perception. And so more of a not yet method. I really like that, Katie. Yeah, that's I a, try to say that to students. It's a great. not yet. And that's not my my idea. That's Carol Dweck, who yeah, right. has... Um, has taught us everything that we know about about growth mindset and not yet is such a powerful tool that i use all the time with with our students hey so there's one other thing i want to talk about before we finish and that is kind of the the feeling of i've encountered this a few times with students who um will say to me i've never been more productive ever in my life and then they apologize right after they say it because you know, for them being at home is a big advantage. Um, you know, we can, we can talk about the challenges, but I love being at home. I love quarantine. I'm an introvert and this is my, this is my time to shine, man. Um, I'm speaking for myself. I just, I really, I enjoy an excuse not to have to get out of the house. So and when students have that kind of experience, they oftentimes say, I'm really being productive. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that, right? And we kind of feel like we have to always be on our guard, not uh, experiencing good things out of, this, um, out of this condition. Can you help us think a little bit about how we talk to ourselves or maybe talk to others um, about growing in a time when... Um, when we might be experiencing pain and the people around us might be experiencing pain, but we're also experiencing growth and development. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Scott, I think the first thing that I think is so important to acknowledge is that having those positive experiences and even positive emotions, um, good and bad are not incompatible, right? Uh, positive emotions and negative emotions are not incompatible. There are qualitatively different phenomena, right? They're, they don't exist on the same continuum. And I think this is where it may trip a lot of people up because they think about, oh, I am happy on one end of this, this there's this continuum and happiness is at one end of it and depression is at the other end of it, okay? But that's not the case. Um, we know that happy people can experience depression and that depressed people can experience happiness, right? Um, you know, for a long time, when researchers studied emotions, they focused on negative emotions. And um, thank goodness, we've talked about how negative emotions can truly save our lives. Um, but 
Um, when we started to think about positive emotions, at first researchers put those in the same paradigm as negative emotions. And now we recognize, thanks to research by, um, by amazing people like Barbara Fredrickson, we know that positive emotions are qualitatively different from negative emotions. They're not on the same continuum. Um, and so we have to acknowledge that. That's so important to, to know and understand, um, which explains why, hey, in this time of immense distress, we can experience positive emotions. We can experience growth. We can experience um, finding more meaning and more purpose in our lives. We can be more productive. Like we're acknowledging that, hey, there is good here. And acknowledging that, like your student acknowledging that, hey, I'm actually more productive. And you acknowledging like, you know what, this is easier for me in certain ways. That's a great way of of managing the distress that's associated with it is by focusing on, hey, here are some some good parts of this situation. That's I'm so glad you brought those points up, KK. Those were beautifully told, and um, it makes me think about a parallel, the parallel studies with trauma, because that same image of two continuum, two continuum instead of a separate one for post-traumatic distress and post-traumatic growth. So that often people who go through a trauma experience, um, we're all, I think all of us familiar with post-traumatic stress and the, those um, pieces we just talked about, like um, concentration and sleep and negative emotions are forms of post-traumatic stress. Um, but there's also post-traumatic growth is a a really strong body of research of the ways that we grow positively, even from the most traumatic events, even from life-threatening and life-changing events. We um, there's a strong body of evidence to show that that human beings grow. Most human beings who go through traumatic events will report um, strong areas of growth. And my own research was um, a post-trauma leadership. Um, so with the post-traumatic growth studies, what they learned over time was that it's not a matter of being in a distress mode, PTSD, and moving out of that into a growth mode. It was that there are two continua that happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you do not have to be okay in terms of not having the negative emotions, in terms of being able to sleep. You do not have to get past all of those things before you begin to grow you begin to grow at the same time. And to me, one of my, my most exciting discoveries when I was looking at um, trauma-inspired leadership, as, as I named it in my dissertation, was that the same thing was true there, that those people who went through um, severe traumas and wanted to use that experience as a, um, to inspire their own leadership to serve someone else going through the same type of trauma or maybe to prevent that trauma from happening again. Those leaders did, were still recovering from their distress while they were entering their very effective leadership roles. So it was not a matter of being fully okay and then beginning to lead and serve others but doing both at the same time. I think that you're illustrating what so many people are experiencing right now, where, hey, they're struggling, right? Many people are struggling right now, 
but they're also surviving. Many of those people who are struggling are also thriving right now. We can do both. When I was in seminary, um, one of the one of the deans came and t- came to talk to us, and a student complained to the dean about how much work we were having to do, and it was a lot. It was it felt impossible at times to keep up. And the dean uh, responded to, again. This was in a seminary, but the the dean responded to the student, "Look, um, in real life, you don't get to do everything all the time, and part of what we're requiring of you is to pick and choose what you do well." And I remember thinking in the moment, that's a brilliant pedagogical approach to um, to really force us as future ministers to think carefully about uh, what we choose to do and what we choose not to do or what we choose to do well and what we choose to do less well, because that's the real condition. Um, and you know what? That's really true for everybody. It's not just true for seminary students or for ministers. It's true for all of us that we're making decisions and making choices. And sometimes these kinds of experiences can have the effect of helping us um, really improve our ability to multitask or improve our ability to be transparent um, or improve our ability to uh, to work in smaller chunks of time than we thought uh, we needed. And there might be a number of upsides. It's okay to embrace those. It's okay to grow from those and also have empathy for one's neighbor who might be um, struggling or have empathy for oneself while we, while we struggle. Hey, I got to say something. I miss Peter in this episode, but not too much because KK and Jennifer, y'all were really, really helpful. I think you helped us uh, uh, this issue and we really do appreciate you all being here. I mean, I'll I'll look forward to speaking to Peter next time, but meanwhile, it's so good to have you both here. This is brilliant. And I think uh, we'll provide so much support for not only our students, but for those who are experiencing grief and trauma as they grow. I love that. Uh, And I really, really cannot thank you enough. 